This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. On Tuesday, Christopher Dawson was found guilty of murdering his former wife, Lynette, four decades ago in Sydney's northern beaches. Dawson, to this day, maintains his innocence. Chris and Lynette Dawson became familiar to listeners in Australia and around the world after the Australian and Hedley Thomas's podcast, The Teacher's Pet, explored the disappearance of Lynette and the relationship between Dawson and a 16-year-old student who was the family's babysitter. The podcast has been credited by some for Dawson finally being charged with murder. But The Teacher's Pet has its critics too. Today, I'm talking to Head of News Mike Tisher and Deputy Live News Editor Joe Tovey about The Teacher's Pet and the impact of true crime journalism. It's Friday, the 2nd of September. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Gabs. So the teacher's pet has been in the news a lot this week and there's been lots of praise for the podcast and for Hedley Thomas, the journalist behind it. What have people been saying, Joe? Well, the conviction of Chris Dawson this week is being hailed as a huge win for investigative journalism because of the Teacher's Pet podcast. There's been enormous praise for Hedley Thomas and his dogged pursuit of this case. Lynn Dawson went missing in 1982 and it was only now that her husband Chris Dawson was finally convicted of her murder following the mega successful podcast in 2018, which really brought new evidence to light and drew in an audience of millions and millions of people around the world. So Thomas has claimed that victory and the industry, I'd say, has overwhelmingly congratulated him for his work and what it's led to. Mm, And he won a gold Walkley for it too at the time, didn't he? He did. It was incredibly celebrated at the time. It was probably Australia's first real blockbuster podcast. I don't think we'd seen a sort of cultural phenomenon in podcasting in Australia until The Teacher's Pet. And it was not only successful here, but it went global. Mm. With all this praise, it's important to note this isn't necessarily over, that Chris Dawson has always maintained his innocence and his legal team have flagged their intention to appeal this verdict. But there have also been some criticisms, Mike. What have they been? Many and varied, I think. Some of the initial criticisms were that it ran the risk of derailing the trial altogether. Dawson's lawyers had gone to court to try to achieve that end, but in the end it was ruled that the trial should take place with a judge only, not a jury, but there was a risk that it might not take place at all because of the publicity generated by the podcast. Then there was criticism from the Supreme Court judge in this case where he said the podcast may in whole or in part have completely deprived some evidence of its usefulness because of confusion about whether the witness statements given in the podcast were genuine recollections of what happened at the time or may have been prompted by Thomas's questions. So there were some doubts around some of the content of the podcast as well. There's been criticism of the people who appeared in the podcast. And then there's the criticism that it was prejudicial in the sense that Thomas was convinced of Dawson's guilt from the get-go and sought to make that case rather than dispassionately analysing the evidence, which, of course, he strenuously rejects and did so in court. I haven't listened to the podcast, I was full disclosure. 
I have no view on whether that's a reasonable criticism or not. And I guess further, there are also broader criticisms of true crime podcasts in general, which we'll get to around the kind of cases that are selected, the way they illustrate crime in general by focusing on single cases, many broader questions. But I think those specific ones are the main ones that have been levelled at Thomas. Joe, you and I listened to The Teacher's Pet. What were some of the criticisms that you read this week and reflected on after listening? Well, I guess I'll just say up front, I would say that I really enjoyed the podcast for the most part. I really, particularly the first sort of six or eight episodes, I really ate them up as long as Mm. in the way that everybody else did back in 2018. I found it really gripping. I found what it uncovered about the relationships between teachers and students in the Northern Beaches at the time completely shocking. Mm. I found the lack of investigation or the apparent lack of investigation by police at the time into Lynette Dawson's disappearance, completely shocking. And I think Thomas pursued both of those issues really doggedly and and skillfully. And I think he painted a really vivid picture of life on the Northern Beaches at that time, this sort of privileged enclave of Sydney. I do think that some of those criticisms, though, as a journalist listening to it, you thought, my goodness, what effect will this have on a potential future trial? And that sort of risk loomed over the last five years, really. There were so many points where it seemed like the podcast, even though it had brought this case to light and seemingly put a lot of pressure on for it to be finally brought before a court, also risked derailing it. And that tension last right up until the moment of the verdict being delivered. It was a real fear that justice would be derailed, even though justice had also simultaneously potentially been brought by the podcast. The other criticism I guess I had of the podcast listening to it was I really did not like the framing and the name of the podcast, The Teacher's Pet. I felt that it was bringing to light a lot of really important issues around the treatment of women, both of the women in the case, the babysitter and Lynette Dawson, but I found the framing as the teacher's pet one that sort of quite sexualizing and maybe a bit minimizing of what she went through. I think that was a really unfortunate choice. Mm. And I think that the trial where JC, the young woman, was able to testify and say in open court that she was groomed, that Mm. she felt like a sex slave, she was really given a voice in the trial and reframed her own narrative in a way that I thought was really important. Mike, as you said, The Teacher's Pet wasn't the first true crime podcast made by journalists and I doubt it will be the last. But does this moment provide us an opportunity to reflect on how these podcasts are made? Absolutely, it does, and we certainly should reflect on it. There are many and varied examples of where this has been done well or badly, but I think more often than not, it's rare to find a really successful true crime podcast that has kind of ticked all the boxes that you would think uh, ethical journalism does. The originator of a lot of this was Serial, Mm. which many people listen to, including me, and I think that starts us off with one of the main problems, which is in that case and in many others, the victims' families have declined to take part of, you know, actively not wanted the podcast to be made. And that should be the kind of first base you get to, really, whether you're considering to make a podcast about a particular case is whether it's in the interests of the families of the victim or not. But I think they have to start from the point of view that not just is this entertaining, is this going to be gripping, is it a kind of sensational tale, but is it in the interests of the immediate victims or their families 
And is it setting any single case in the context of crime more generally? Is it presenting a kind of, yeah, or is it putting it in in its proper context? Mm. And just picking up on that, I think, you know, one of the more common and I think legitimate criticisms of true crime as a genre, and this applies to podcasts as well as print media and, and books and such, is that they tend to emphasise certain types of victims, which tend to be younger white women and ignore other victims of crime, people of colour, poorer people, people killed in other settings. You know, it's very particular types of murders that tend to be focused on, which skew the public perception of what crime is, who is at risk in our society. Mm. And I think that's quite a legitimate criticism and is just sort of a broader problem with journalism, who picks these stories, what type of stories sell. Um, And that's something that we can all kind of reflect on. Mm. There are some really good examples of that. I think the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did a great job on Finding Cleo, which really shone a spotlight on missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. So what should journalists be thinking about? What should journalists be alert to and editors when they're commissioning these kinds of crime reporting projects? I mean, I think it's looking at crimes not just as a sort of a phenomenon between a couple of people, but looking at broader structural issues, as you say, you know, The Guardian did a podcast, Breathless, a couple of years ago on the the death of David Dungay in prison, which, you know, raised all kinds of issues around deaths in custody. I do think the teacher's pet, even though it was largely a sort of a compelling narrative about these three people, did point to broader issues if we're willing to kind of look at them around domestic violence, around coercive control, and again, around the sort of sexual exploitation of teenagers. And I think that's what makes these stories, takes them beyond just a sort of a salacious interest in one or two events and into a kind of a broader look at society and they're incredibly useful in that sense. Mm. And we should also mention the previous one that the Australian did on the Bowerville deaths Mm. uh, where they investigated deaths that traumatised that community in the early 90s which the Indigenous community there felt had never been properly investigated and no one had ever been held to account for. And even though that didn't result in a successful conviction of anyone, it did a good job, I think, of bringing that story back to life and presenting it in a fair and accurate fashion that did justice to the people who were at the heart of it. Why do people love true crime so much, Joe? It's a hard one for me to answer because I have a sort of love-hate relationship with true crime. Like I, as I said, I I really enjoyed and, and listened hungrily to the teacher's pet and I, you know, I, I like a lot of police procedurals and stuff. I also find it quite a macabre genre and quite off-putting and I really have to limit the amount that I listen to because it's quite depressing and upsetting hearing stories which are largely about the murder of women and girls. I think it's interesting how a lot of women don't share that view, though, and that women are generally huge consumers of true crime. I have friends who just listen to podcast after podcast and devour true crime books, similar to the way that teenage girls seem to love horror movies and slasher movies. I know I did as a teen, which tend to be all about teenage girls getting murdered. I wonder if there's some a way to engage with your own sort of fears about the world in a sort of safe and controlled way. I also think true crime is a genre that explores, you know, the sort of difficult realities of our lives. Like the teacher's pet, as much as it's true crime, it's also a story about a suburban woman and her very troubled marriage. And it's a story about a quite a shocking relationship a teenage girl had with a, an older man. These are things that a lot of women can relate to and it explored kind of themes about sex and power and relationships and family 
that exists in a lot of true crime and I think in a way that it doesn't in a lot of other genres of news storytelling. And so I think that can be particularly attractive to women to see their stories told, albeit often in quite a a dark way. Mm. It's also that people just love crime in general. They love fictional crime Mm. equally as much as true. Obviously, I mean, maybe because things are true, they group people more, but in TV, certainly, you know, and in books going back forever, people just love to read about crime. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I read about and, pamphlets and in the 16th century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not a fan of true crime. I think it gives people an unrealistic view of rates of crime mm. and perhaps also of the kinds of crimes. And as we've discussed, the kinds of, you know, the people who are typically perpetrators and victims of crime. But I think it tends to raise people's to, to give people a view that crime is more prevalent than it is, as particularly violent crime, even while true crime can shine a light on things that we haven't talked about enough, like domestic violence, but equally it can elevate violence and murder to levels that actually, certainly in Australia, are not as prevalent as you might get from listening to an unending diet yeah. of true crime. And also I think sometimes true crime and fictional crime doesn't explore the kind of nuance around policing. That's something that I often find quite off-putting when you only have the sort of heroic police figures and obviously some police and detectives do a great job, but I'm certainly more interested at least in fictional crime in like Mayor of Easttown was my favourite show last year, shows that explore a little bit more about the sort of complexities of those roles or shows like The Wire that look at kind of the failures of policing and their role in the justice system. I think the teacher's pet, you know, was something that I thought was very interesting about it was the way that it shone a light on the very poor policing, um, at least in the early stages of this case, which allowed essentially nothing to be done for a very long time. So obviously true crime is a huge phenomenon, not just in journalism, but in popular entertainment as well. How do we judge when the journalism becomes entertainment or is that something we should be alert to or we even need to worry about? Yeah, we definitely do need to worry about it because people's deaths are not Yeah, Uh, it seems trite to point that out, but we shouldn't be watching or listening or reading about these things and taking a kind of prurient interest in them, which often does seem to be the case, rather than, you know, using them as ways to get at very serious issues within the justice system of whichever country it may be that they're in. I mean, I think it's a reality that whether it's a podcast or any piece of journalism, you want people to read it or engage with it. So it needs to be narratively interesting and and I don't think that means it's bad journalism if it's Mm. compelling however it has to serve other purposes ideally it should bring an injustice to light hopefully it could point to broader social issues and it should also do so in a way that doesn't impede future justice actual justice from being meted out in that case so they would sort of be the boundaries I'd put around it I don't think being entertaining in and of itself should be seen as a problem but as long as that entertainment doesn't come at the expense of actual justice and of people's privacy and sensitivity as well. I mean, I think Mike raised a good point and, you know, Serial raised questions about victims' families who don't want to be involved and they don't want to be part of something like this. That obviously doesn't apply to the teacher's pet, but in more general terms, that's something that I think should be a real guardrail around journalism uh, in this area. I think maybe journalists need to think about the very basic question they're asking with a podcast. So in the case of Serial, the question was, is this guy guilty or not? But perhaps there are other ones which also relate to true crime where where the question is a more open one. We reported recently 
on an inquest in the case of a woman called Marion Barter, who was the subject of a Channel 7 podcast called The Lady Vanishes. And there the question was posed by her relatives, by her daughter specifically, and others, what happened to this woman? She she disappeared. So then the question is much more open. It led in eventually, ultimately again, decades later, to an inquest at which the family felt they had finally found some answers. And maybe that's a better way to think about the question because if it's a either-or question, then you're always thinking, is the journalist or the media organisation making this podcast, do they have a preconceived idea of mm. what the answer is? Mm. Are they leaving out crucial things or including other things? Are they overemphasising some details and not emphasising others that lead to a certain conclusion one way or the other? Or are they centering themselves in the podcast, as I think I would argue Sarah Koenig did in Serial. It's mm. like, oh, I don't know what I think about this kind of case, you know, that it shouldn't be about the person reporting it. So, yeah, maybe there's a, a more open-ended way of looking at cases is more productive than that kind of, is this person guilty or not? That does run risks, I think, in the presentation of true crime. Next, second homes and $15 million mansions. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what was it for you this week? So my story this week is one that just made me absolutely ropeable. <laughs> it was the one about the properties that MPs declared, the number of properties mm. that MPs declared in their register of interests with the return to parliament. We wrote a story this week just tallying up all the properties that they've declared, which was revealed that they... On average, most MPs and senators have at least one other property. They own the one they live in and they have at least one other property. In some cases, they have up to four, five or even six investment properties. And this was across the board, Labor, Coalition, even Greens, not all Greens. Some Greens declared nothing, that they were renters. But it just made me think, when you wonder why our failure to reign in the property market our failure to provide affordable housing for people who need it most or even just regular people, why that's so difficult. Maybe this has a little bit to do with it. Not that I'm suggesting that MPs and senators vote purely in their own interests. They certainly don't. That that would be unfair. But the mindset of wealthy Australians, that investment property is just kind of the normal thing that you do, Mm. that you invest in, in real estate and that's how you... Sustain yourself. I don't know. It just drove me absolutely wild to think that that's that's the normal way we do things, and that particularly the people who are making our laws around it, uh, that's that goes for them just as much as anyone else. Mm. Joe, do you have something slightly more upbeat? <laughs> Sorry. Sort of. Uh, so the story I couldn't get out of my head was not from the Guardian, but from the Cut. Their profile of Meghan Markle this week, which. Now, I've generally been quite a defender of Meghan Markle. I think she has been attacked in a kind of deranged and unfair, often quite racist, always very sexist Mm. manner by the British press and American press and conservatives here. Um, But I have to say the profile was a kind of a masterful, uh, not evisceration, it was far more subtle than that, but of her and Harry's sort of opulent, slightly ridiculous lifestyle in California 
there was a particular moment in it which I just like stopped my breath where she Megan told the journalist Alison P Davis who's just so excellent about how someone had come up to her and told her that her marriage to Harry had been a Nelson Mandela like moment for him and <laughs> other people it was it's just incredible oh, no um, one told her not to say that out loud <laughs> someone someone needs a new PR advisor seriously <laughs> I will look it up thanks Joe thanks so much for joining us today Mike thanks thanks Joe thank you That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. That's it for this week and Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then.